I'm Julian, and welcome back to We've Got Next Pod. So this episode, we're going to do some thinking about mass incarceration, and more specifically, how to have a country in which fewer people are actually in jail. The U.S. is an outlier among developed nations in terms of how many people we put in prison. And there are actually some real-world examples of this, states and localities trying to de-incarcerate. So I talked to Dr. Karis Kubrin, who's a criminologist at the, the University of California at Irvine. So we talked about her work on California's public safety realignment and Prop 47, both of which happened a few years in the past and which we'll explain in the interview. And these are real-world examples of California trying to have fewer people in jail. So I talked to her about what these two acts were and what their effects were. Enjoy. Okay, so first, will you just tell me about California's public safety realignment? Just what was it, why did it happen, and what its effects were? Sure. So California's AB 109, realignment as you called it, was one of the biggest criminal justice reforms, not just to California, but in the country ever. And what's funny is it was implemented in 2011, mainly to bring our prison population down because we were so over incarcerated in the state. And I was new to California in 2011, having moved from DC back to California to start my job at UC Irvine, never heard of realignment, didn't know California prisons were as bad as they were. Anyway, when I got here, all anyone was talking about in 2011 was realignment and what impact it was going to have in the state. Basically, what realignment did is take um, individuals who were incarcerated in our state prisons, where there was tons of overcrowding, and identify the lowest level nonviolent, non-serious, non-sex offenders, and send them back down to the counties where they came from so they could be dealt with locally, Mm -hmm. basically as a way to reduce overcrowding in our state prisons. So the state prisons sent them to the county or local prisons, and those local prisons had to decide what to do with them. Right. So basically in California, and this is true in other states as well, we have state prisons, and this is where people go to serve sentences of longer than a year, right? So if you get convicted of a crime, and it's a pretty serious crime, and you have to do serious time, you will go to one of our state prisons. If you get convicted of a smaller offense, um, and usually are sentenced to less than a year, you will serve your time in a count, your county jail. I want to back up quickly and just t- to talk about how the California got to the point where that needed to happen. How does one of the most progressive states have a prison population that's so large that the courts say that it needs to be lowered? And also, how are, how are there so many prisoners that government officials can be okay with letting go, but that are right. in jail? Yeah, so I'm sure you're familiar with the term mass incarceration. Yes. California was one of the states at the epicenter of mass incarceration. And in a very short time period, California incarcerated so many individuals that they were well over design capacity in state prisons. And in fact, this was the case even after California built many prisons in the 80s and 90s, um, filled those prisons as well. And what happened is that in about 2006, California prison population reached a peak well, well over design capacity. 
and things were bad. It wasn't just overcrowding, but the health conditions in the prisons were bad. Um, there were all kinds of medical issues in the prisons. You couldn't keep um, individuals serving their sentences safe um, because of just the overcrowding. And so lots of lawsuits were being brought against the, the state prisons in California. By the way, when I came here in 2011 and I did a tour of some of the prisons and the jails, I went to the LA County Jail, I just was shocked to see visually how much overcrowding was taking place. Like it wasn't just, you know, we think of prisons or jails and we think of people in cells, Yeah. right? Maybe one or two people. Those were already completely filled up. What they were doing was taking like big gymnasium rooms and putting bunk beds and rows and rows and rows and rows. If you Google California, you know, realignment state prison population and hit images, you will see some of these. So what happened was lawsuits started coming and the Supreme Court stepped in and said the condition in this the famous case was Brown v. Plata. That case, the ruling in that case told California, you have to reduce your prison population by some 33,000 individuals in the next two years. Wow. So 33,000 individuals who were in jail for presumably serious reasons. For more in than prisons, in, yes. in our state prisons, yep. Crimes that earn them sentences of over a year are going to be released within the next two years. Now, mind you, they identified part of realignment was to identify the lowest risk individuals. So they weren't taking someone who had been convicted of murder, say, yes. and then saying, here, go back to your county. And by the way, when they were released out of the state prisons, these 33,000 individuals, they weren't just let go. A lot of people say, oh, people, they just got let go and now they're roaming free in society. No, each county had to draft up a plan to figure out how it was going to handle these returning releases. Some counties like Los Angeles County simply put them in jail primarily. Other counties tended to look for reentry kinds of programs and rehabilitation programs, and others did things like community supervision, like with the ankle electronic yeah. monitoring thing. So each county kind of took its own approach to dealing with the individuals coming back. So what were the what were the effects of that? Were, like, is it does it, does it make sense just from a macro perspective to have I don't know how many different localities there are in California all making their own decisions and then. How, what were the effects of different types of decisions? Like, did jails then get overcrowded in LA County, or did criminals commit more crimes in other places where they were let go? What happened? Excellent question. So, first of all, what happened was each county was given a pot of money from the state to deal with and address the returning individuals. And each county brought together people from all different backgrounds from corrections, from rehabilitation, from the community, the police to sit down and draft a plan. So you couldn't just take the money and run, so yeah. to speak. You had to come up with a plan. Now, each county's plan looked quite different, but it was meant to be localized to the needs of that county. So, you know, one question that a lot of people had, especially in counties where people were simply put into jails, was, well, are we going to have overcrowding in our jails, exactly as you mentioned? The good news is research shows that even when people were placed in jails coming from realignment, the number of people put in jails was less than the number of people released overall. So the overcrowding did not result in uh, 58 mini platas, as they said, as each county had its own overcrowding crisis. That luckily did not occur. Now, that's not to say that jails didn't get a bit more crowded, yeah. but it wasn't a disaster like, like pre-realignment was. 
So do you, what, what are the numbers, if there are any sense of it, of how many formerly incarcerated people were released? Um, out into the community directly? Yes. Yeah, I don't know that number, and I'm not quite sure that number even exists. It's mm-hmm. probably county by county and not public data. But the vast majority of people either went to jail, were on community supervision, or were released and then on parole, which is where you're still being monitored. Um, for your behavior, um, but you're not incarcerated. You're not in jail or in, in prison. Now, when I came here, realignment was already underway, and everywhere I turned in the news, people were saying, we are going to have a crime wave in California. Mm. You can't let 33,000 people out of prison, doing even, even if you put them in jail or community supervision without having crime, skyrocket. Now, that is a plausible reality, but you have to do a proper analysis and test and evaluation. And that's where I came in with my research with colleagues here at UC Irvine and beyond to do these evaluations of this criminal justice experiment. And the big finding was that realignment had zero impact on violent crime in the state following its implementation and only a very modest or small impact on property crime. And that was only for auto theft and larceny. Hmm. So what does that tell us about other states and or maybe like a nationwide approach if you can release this many criminals and not see that big of an effect? Right. So and by the way, every other state was watching California. California was the test case. We were the experiment. What it tells us, I think, is a couple of things. One, we can downsize our prisons without harming public safety, at least at this level. Right. Identifying people that are not going to recidivate, unlikely to cause much risk, not going to engage in major crimes, and locking them up in our state prisons at the tune of, at the time, $55,000 a year. That's now closer to 70-something thousand dollars a year. I'm sure you're thinking about college. Wait, you're in college or you're in high school? I'm thinking about it next year as college. Okay, right? Can you imagine if you could take $70,000 and put that towards a college education, what difference that would make, right? So it's quite expensive to put people in in, in California, and I'm sure the same as in New York, to put them away in prison for a year. Um, So the first lesson we learned is that we, a lot of these people didn't need to be in state prisons at that rate. And then it raised questions about whether we are using our criminal justice system in the most efficient, effective, and fair way, right? And a lot of what had happened is this buildup that led to this overcrowding was the result of years of policies of get tough on crime policies, truth in sentencing, mandatory minimums, three strikes and you're out. All of these policies created situations where more people were more likely to go to prison for longer. So... You made a distinction earlier between what happened to violent crime and what happened to property crime. And I think that's a good segue to talk about Prop 47. So what was that? When did it happen? Why did it happen? And what's happened since then? Sure. So Prop 47 was the following reform that was implemented by California. Recall the Supreme Court told the state, you need to take 33,000 individuals out of your state prisons, release them right down to the county. Realignment went pretty far in doing that, but it did not 
get to the 33,000 mark. Prop 47 came in and did that. Now, what Prop 47 did was it identified some very low-level drug and larceny sort of petty, petty theft crimes that were previously treated as felonies. And a felony means it's a more serious crime. If you're charged with a felony, it means it's treated as a more serious crime and you're gonna get longer time in prison. What Prop 47 did was say, these are pretty low level crimes. They shouldn't be treated as felonies. If we charge people who engage in those crimes with misdemeanors, they're not gonna get sent up to the state prison. They'll be kept locally in the jail and then we will basically not have so many people in our state prisons. So the motivation was to get people out, of, was to lower the state prison population, but it wasn't as much about like what the adequate response to certain crimes is? Right. So okay. it, it did focus on some low-level crimes, like I said, petty drug and petty kind of theft and larceny and writing a bad check, right? Basically, for individuals who had committed those crimes at low levels, like if you stole someone's piece of art and it's worth millions of dollars, Prop 47 does not apply to you. (laughs) If you steal someone's backpack and their wallet in it and it has, you know, a couple hundred bucks in it, what the state was saying is there's no reason to charge you with a felony and then send you up to state prison. We're going to keep you locally. So that way we would not be filling our state prisons again. And Prop 47 worked... um, retroactively so what it did was identify people in a few in the state prison who were in again for these minor kinds of things that did not get released under realignment and then again sent them in this case released them you know if they were close to the end of their sentence so after prop 47 was passed and became policy did more people steal things that would qualify under that or commit those petty drug crimes So two questions. One, what happened to crime, which is what you're asking. And two, I think the more important question is, was Prop 47 responsible for what happened to crime? Mm. So because I think those are two different things. Crime could have gone up, but Prop 47 could not be responsible for that. And you may be thinking, well, how could that be? If you enact a policy and then crime goes up, didn't the policy cause crime to go up? Here's the trick about that. Crime is multidimensional, and it's caused by many, many factors socioeconomic conditions like poverty, joblessness, and inequality, demographic shifts in the population, police community relations, which I don't need to tell young people about today, right? There's so many things that cause crime to go up, go down, or stay the same. One policy isn't going to solely determine what crime does. Yeah. So in a nutshell, actually, in Prop 47 was published, was went live in 2014. In 2015, crime did go up in some places in California. Turns out Prop 47, according to our analysis, an analysis I did with Brad Bartos, showed that it was not, Prop 47 was not responsible for those increases in, um, uh, in crime. And then, of course, since then, crime's gone down, maybe up a little bit, but down, up, down, up. It sort of, it's, yeah. so it's if, variable. So if you, there are these crimes like stealing a candy bar and anything that qualifies under Prop 47, and then you make it, you make the penalty lower, and then there's right. no effect. Can we extrapolate that to mean that punishments for, for crime aren't really preventative, and they don't really so, stop crime from happening? 
Yeah, so actually, in the context of Prop 47, that's still unknown because no one's really been able to study that. But what I think you're asking me is what is the relationship between incarceration and crime or arrest and crime? Yes. And actually, there's a really big criminological literature on that, right? Like, what we think in theory is that if you just incarcerate more people, crime will monotonically go down, right? It, I mean, it, it just seems logical. Yeah. If people are incarcerated... And more and more and more and more of them are incarcerated. At some point, you're going to incarcerate so much that crime will go away. Turns out it doesn't work that way. And this is why we need research, because things seem so obvious sometimes. But it turns out when you do a study, the findings are not so obvious. Yeah. Here's what we know about the relationship between incarceration and crime. At very low levels of incarceration, lots of crimes are like when you target the most serious offenders, the ones that are likely to recidivate or reoffend, that are have engaged in the most serious crimes, and you incarcerate them, that will impact crime. And for a while there, they track each other. Rising incarceration rates means declining crimes. But at some point, you start, uh, what's the term, getting less bang for the buck in terms of incarceration. In other words, you keep incarcerating, but the gains in terms of reductions in crime don't, you max out. And that's partly because you're casting the net so wide and you're incarcerating so many people. And a lot of those people don't need to be incarcerated. Even if you didn't incarcerate, they wouldn't have gone on to commit another crime. And so what we call that is the diminishing effects of incarceration. Here's the one last thing about that that we've learned from research on mass incarceration is that if you keep incarcerating, you're gonna stop seeing gains in crime, but at some point you're actually gonna make things worse in mm. society. You're gonna increase inequality. You're going to have, I mean, all kinds of issues, whether we're talking about educational inequality, labor market inequality, income inequality, civic participation inequality, all of that can result with over-incarceration. So is there a way to is there a way to be able to tell like first like what 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 threshold certain crimes should be at because there's a very clear distinction between violent crime and then this kind of crime that qualifies under prop 47 and I assume when you talk about focused deterrence policing you're talking yeah. about the like violent crime right Right. So it's very difficult to calculate out these kinds of numbers and that's partly because humans are unpredictable and we change and we're variable and we, you know, we interact with our, you know, my husband's a physicist and right in physics and some other sciences, right? You know, it's like gravity. If I pick up this pen and drop it every single time, I know that yeah. pen is going to drop down because of, of, of gravity. And it's like, there's a certainty there. It's a law. With human behavior, there's so many factors that go into understanding it and explaining it. So we do use statistics to try and predict these kinds but it is not nearly as definitive as laws. So there's big debates in the literature about, about these numbers, um, but I don't think anyone truly knows what those exact numbers are with certainty. But we do understand the nature of this relationship, right? At, a, at low levels of incarceration, crime is prevented. At some point that stops happening and then there's even further problems from continuing incarceration at such high levels. Yes. So I wanted to ask about that. Do you, you in the um in what I've read of your work, 
there are like numbers like one year served in prison instead of at large um right. can result in like 1.5 fewer auto deaths auto thefts a year sorry and saves yep. like twelve thousand dollars how do you how do you think about it when you're quantifying the the like the benefits of like arrest versus like the cost of arrests or sorry right. imprisonment Right. So every decision in, in, in how we handle criminal justice in society and everything in general, really, is, is a cost benefit analysis of sorts. Right. If we put people in prison, how many crimes are averted? Yeah. Right now, if tons and tons of crimes are averted, that's great. <laughs> right. If a small number of crimes are averted, was it worth it? And so what we do and try to do, and it sounds kind of crude even as I'm talking about it, is we try and figure out what that risk to reward ratio is or that cost benefit analysis is. And that particular figure that you mentioned was calculated by colleagues of mine who looked at realignment impact on crime. And what they kind of concluded from that is that letting people be at large instead of locked up because realignment passed prevents only a very small, if you will, number of property crimes in a given year for the state. But it costs the state a lot of money in terms of having to house them in prison. And then there's the emotional costs and benefits, if you will, on both sides, right? Yes. So for example, if we let an individual go, instead of putting them behind bars, how does that make the victim and his or her family feel? Yeah. Right? That, that's a cost. That's an emotional cost. On the other hand, when we lock someone up in prison for the crime they've committed, there's emotional costs to them and their family. Now that's harder to measure, but we can at least do a, a, a dollar cost benefit analysis. And, and the conclusion there was you're not getting, it's really not a good investment to put people in prison if they're unlikely to commit many crimes. So what I'm, what I'm we're trying to get at is like, what is a big, like a big amount, a big number of crimes avoided, and what's like a small number? Because do you think about it like if it costs California? You mentioned fifty five thousand dollars earlier at the time mm -hmm. when these were conducted. If it costs fifty five thousand dollars to imprison a person for a year, do you look to see if the financial, like the money being saved in society, is more or less than that? Is that the threshold, or what? What number do you look at for? Context? I don't actually think there's a right answer to that question. I think it's a moral question in some ways, how much are we willing to, you know, I mean, we can put dollar amounts to that, but how much, how, when, when you're a victim of crime, do dollar amounts really matter? You know, there's a emotive aspect of being a victim of a crime um, that is not really quantifiable. What I can tell you is what we were doing prior to realignment was, was not working. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I can tell you with these extremes, like, Putting all those people in prison, making the state bankrupt, and actually not having recidivism or crime rates go down, but just filling our prisons was not actually worth the crime saved at that level. That's why the Supreme Court stepped in. One thing I want to say, Prop 47, you know what was cool about that piece of legislation? All of the money that was saved by not putting people in state prisons, but rather keeping them locally, that money was meant to be funneled into prevention programs. So things like substance abuse, alcohol treatment, mental health treatment, juvenile at-risk youth, all of that money was meant to then be put into programs that would reduce crime on the front end through prevention. That's cool. That is very cool. My last question is about how 
since Prop 47 and realignment, are there ways that other states have done similar things to try to reduce their prison population or like lower certain felonies to misdemeanors? And how have those turned out? 100%. And like I said, California was the epicenter of these reforms. Everyone was watching California. And it is not surprising that a number of other states have implemented various measures. Now, I don't know all of the states and all of the measures, but there are so many reforms going on, much needed reforms. Your state, Cal- uh, New York, has implemented a lot of reforms. Now people are moving on to newer reforms around bail, prosecution, and other kinds of things. So I think there's a constant discussion about how we can reform our criminal justice system. We want to have a criminal justice system that protects society from people who are dangerous. There's no, no one's going to disagree with that. But we're starting to now really consider whether we need to be doing business as usual, which is basically locking people up for such long periods of time for petty kinds of crimes. Like, is that, it may make us feel good to have people in prison when they do bad things like that, you know, or they, 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 you know, a victim is experiences victimization. On the other hand, you know, there are major costs to that kind of approach. And I think we've experienced that. I think that is a perfect place to wrap up. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Julie. That's all for today. I hope you enjoyed. And make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.